Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about how people in church should treat each other. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to make one announcement and ask for one favor. First, I want to tell you about our VBS. Every year our VBS reaches and impacts a lot of kids. This year it will be July 15th through 19th. And if you have kids in our area, please head to wilsonville.church VBS. There you can learn all of the details you'll need and you can register. You definitely won't regret having your child attend, I promise. The favor I want to ask is simple. If you find this podcast valuable, it would be great if you left us a rating and review. I know I've said this before, but leaving ratings and reviews helps this content be heard by more people. I know it sounds like a long shot, but helping more people hear this might change a life. Think about it. I mean, taking a minute to type a few words about how you've been impacted could literally impact another person for eternity. So please do that. Like I said, if you've been impacted by this podcast. Thanks again for taking time to listen. I really do hope this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Today is Pentecost, which as was explained earlier, is the day we remember the beginning of the church. In my opinion, it is a a day that the church would do well to to celebrate more fully. Uh, Like uh, my dad said at the beginning, we know when Christmas is, we know when Easter is, but we kind of forget about this day. And the church, for those of us that have been a part of it, those of us that have become Christians, given our lives to Jesus, the church in many ways has been our mother. And I think it's important we remember, especially on this day, what a big deal it is. Um, And I know it was mentioned, and I don't like to get up here and and give announcements, but I really do hope that you'll stick around afterwards today to see the kind of things that we're doing to serve and the ways that you can be involved in serving. Uh, If you're already like, I can't do another thing, I serve a ton at this church, I'd still like you to, to stick around and go to the different tables and, and see the things that are also happening in the church. I know as our church kind of moves forward and grows and we get more leaders that there's beginning to be things in the church that are happening that I don't know how they happen and so it's important for me to walk around and see all that's going on. And so make sure that you take advantage of that and, and I'm going to make the segue here and I think it's The reason that's important is because of the differences that I have seen in church. I've had two really kind of key, long church experiences in my life. I I would say I grew up in a church called Dayspring in Kaiser down the road, and Dayspring was the church that my family attended from the time I was about nine years old when Dayspring was planted and began until I was about 17 years old, my senior year of high school, when I started dating a girl who was going to a different church. And, and, And Dayspring was an important part of my life in some ways, but it fails in comparison to the growth and, and, and the church experience in general that I had at the church I switched to, which is First Church of the Nazarene down in Salem, which I attended between the ages of 17 and when I started working at this church. Um, and, and so those churches I went to for a long time, both of them, but both churches 
uh, had vastly different levels of impact on my life. And, and, and as I stand before you today, I think that the difference between Dayspring and First Church of the Nazarene in my life, like one was so formative and, and so important and uh, a big part of the reason that I'm here today and doing the things that I'm doing are because of the work at First Church of the Nazarene. And Dayspring, which I went to for a long time, is a great church, uh, you know, was, was a big part of my family dynamic. It didn't have that impact. And, and, and I think that a big part of the reason is exactly what we're going to talk about in this series of sermons we're starting today. Uh, there wasn't, you know, any major difference in the quality of music or, or the quality of preaching or the amount of programs that one had versus the other. In fact, they were both similar sized churches by the time I left Dayspring. It was at about a thousand people and, and, and the first church of Nazarene while I was there was running about a thousand people. They were very similar in structure and not necessarily theological background, but structure similar, the, the work that they were doing similar. But one had a major impact on me and one didn't. And I think the difference is in the single phrase, one another. I went to Dayspring for a long time. And, and Dayspring, I never really connected at. We, we went to the church faithfully every single week. But I didn't know hardly anybody outside of my family. But at First Church of the Nazarene, by the nature of of dating a girl who had been plugged in there her entire life, who had grown up there. Uh, I became Bethany's boyfriend and all of a sudden it was like this congregation of people loved me and, and invested in me and cared about me and were there for me and inspired me and pushed me. The difference between my experience at Dayspring and First Church of the Nazarene was not in the leadership, the ability to, for people to communicate, the music quality, any of the things I already said. It was simply in the connections I had and the way that I was invested in by the people in the church. Uh, if you've shown up at, at you know, more than one church in your life, you've had multiple experiences in church, then, then maybe you've had these types of, of experiences, like one church that you went to for however long or whatever, it had an important place in your spiritual journey. You will always be indebted. You'll always know that, that those people loved you and cared about you and helped you in your spiritual journey. Maybe you've gone to another and you feel like, I, I went for a long time and I didn't get much out of it. I would guess that it had nothing to do with the things that we normally think of when we think of church, like how good the preaching was, and had a lot to do with the people that you sat next to every Sunday and how much they invested in you. It's interesting as we think about the American church today and we talk a lot about millennials in the church world and, and how millennials aren't really going to church anymore and and a lot of people are, are asking the question like, how do we reach millennials? Which we do at this church and I'm very thankful for that. But that's a, a common question and I'm around a lot of older pastors in our denomination and, and, and they want to know like, how do we get those millennial people into our church? And, and, and they think that there's this misconception that millennials have this really bad view of church. Like they hate it, they dislike it, they, they, you know, they had this bad experience and they never want to go back or whatever. But the reality is, is for most young people, they've really either had one of two things, no church experience at all, or their church experience didn't seem to matter to them at all. It's not that they hate church or they saw fighting or that they, you know, they're 
parents were kicked out of a church, like these stories that we sometimes hear, these stories seem to be isolated. It's usually, it's usually that people have had no church experience. They just didn't grow up with it. They don't know anything about it. Or they grew up in church, but it didn't really have a major impact on their lives. And so they grow up, they go to college, and they think, why? Why do I want why do I want to keep doing that if it hasn't really had much of an impact on me at all? I think that what makes church important, not the things that we often think about. I don't think that the thing that makes church really valuable is that I get up here on a stage once a week and, and preach a sermon. I don't think that the key thing that makes church valuable is, is that we get to sing together on a Sunday morning. I think that the key thing that makes church valuable is the interactions that happen between the people in the congregation. And at far too many churches, this is a sad reality in the American church today, these interactions that we'll study over the next six sermons are not taking place. The church experience for many people is showing up on a Sunday morning late like I did as a kid, listening to a guy talk, singing a few songs, and then leaving a little bit early to beat the traffic, and then thinking, man, I'm just not really, I'm just really not getting anything out of this. This isn't that important to me. This isn't affecting me in any meaningful way. I, I know because we do have people here that, that fit kind of this billing that a lot of people who come to our church stick at our church because they've gone to other churches as they've grown up and they just, they just haven't experienced much that's meaningful. And I'll tell you the honest truth, they've tried churches, this is from real conversations, that have no offense guys, but better music than us. They've tried churches where there is better preaching. They've tried churches with a, a greater program and organization and all of that and they've left and they've said, why am I doing this? And then they've come here and they've found something and I think even what they found at our church we'll talk about here. I'll be in some ways preaching to the choir. And so in this series, we're going to talk about what makes church, I think, important beyond everything else, and that is the interactions that we have with one another. But before we get there, I want to take a few moments and do something I haven't done in a long time. Uh, most of our church has never heard me make an effort, make an attempt at defining church. This is something in the early days of my time being the pastor at Creekside, I seem to do once a month because I thought it was really important that we were all on the same page about what this is and so I want to begin this series about the one another's of church by simply trying for you to say let's talk about what church is and what we mean when we talk about church um Jesus says church twice basically in Matthew 16 and, and Matthew 18 and in Matthew 16 17 and 18 we read Jesus replied blessed are you Simon son of Jonah for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood but by the father in heaven this is it directly after Peter has said you are the Christ the son of the living God and then Jesus says and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it who says church and this question that we don't ask if you've ever read this passage before if you've grown up in church if you read through the bible you've probably never asked this even if you've read this and thought oh that's interesting it's like what did he mean when he said that word church 
When I've studied this passage in the past, it's an argument about Peter's role within the church, but not often do we stop and go, what, did, what was Jesus building? I mean, if he's building this thing called church on Peter, on the leadership of Peter, what is it that, that he is building? What is this thing that the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome? Now, you may know this if you're a churchy person, you've grown up in church, you uh, may know that this Greek word that translates into church is the word ekklesia. That's, that's the Greek word behind this. And the word ekklesia uh, is a word that primarily just means a gathering. Like it, it could be a word that connected to uh, a political group getting together or a governmental group getting together in a gathering. That's kind of how the word was used. But, but how would, this is the million dollar question, the disciples, the 12 guys who Jesus is talking to when he says, this is how I'm going to build my church, how would they have understood the word? In order to understand the answer to that question, I think you have to go all the way back in time. If you've been through our membership course and you've heard this, and I'm sorry for repeating it, but I think it's so important, you have to go back in time to to really, uh, this, this incredible moment when the Jewish nation was started. You may know the story of the Jewish people, the Israelites. They, they were removed out of, they were taken out of slavery by the Egyptian people, from the Egyptian people. God saved them through a series of miracles. They get out into the wilderness and they all kind of are just standing there. Like, what are we going to do next? What's going to happen? I mean, here we are, God set us free and now we're wandering around in the desert. They're not even wandering yet. They're just sitting in the desert, like waiting. Like, God, what's happening now? It's one of those moments I can think of like, you know, when you're in college or whatever and and you have this crazy idea and then you just kind of get into the middle of it and you're like, oh, I don't know what's next. Like maybe we shouldn't have jumped down on the cliff or whatever. You know, we're stuck here. And then this is their moment. Like, what now? And then God tells them, I want to turn you into a royal priesthood, a holy nation, my treasured possession." And God says, send your guy Moses up on this mountain. And the mountain starts on fire as all these people are gathered waiting for God's direction. Now, what's interesting about that day, this is, this is where it connects to church. This is so important. You pay attention to this so you can give people an answer. What is church? Like the, day, the, the thing that was important about that is the Jews looked back was not that it necessarily was the day the law came. They didn't call it the day of fire on the mountain. I would have gone with that because that's so unique. They actually referred to it as the day of the assembly. And this idea of assembly becomes so important to the people that it becomes almost synonymous with them as, as Israelites. It's like the Israelites or the assembly becomes almost one in the same. And that word for assembly is, I know it's a lot of stuff, a lot of background, but it's the Hebrew word kahal. And later, when Greek translators came along and said, let's turn the Hebrew Bible into Greek, they took the word kahal and they changed it to, you might be able to guess, ekklesia. And so what's staggering about that is the biggest connection, the greatest connection, the the first thing would have been on the disciples' mind when Jesus said ecclesia is simply this. He's talking about a people that gather together in the presence of God. That's how they would have understood this idea of ecclesia. 
Now we know as we read through the New Testament that, that this ecclesia, this thing, this, this word that Jesus uses becomes organized. It has some structure. There's pastors, there's elders, and, and, and the church starts on the day called Pentecost. But what we need to get, what we need to understand is that we who are a church are a church because we gather weekly together in the presence of God to hear from God, to worship to God, to ask God for certain things. That's what makes us a church. But what makes a local church a local church, and this is so cool, is that we leave here every Sunday, right? We leave with the promise of getting back together. And so we are not just a church. This is what's so cool. We are not just a church when we are together in the presence of God. We are a church when we leave because we know that we will be back here someday. It's what makes the church the church. Like we believe that there is churches, but then we believe that all Christians everywhere are a part of the church. And the promise is that we, even, you know, Grace Chapel down the road, Hope Assembly, all these other churches, we're, we're part of the church together, not because we gather together on a weekly basis, but because someday in eternity, we will be gathered together at the throne of Jesus and we will worship him. That's what makes the church the church. And so we, Creekside Bible Church, are a church because we we gather together weekly, and when we leave, we know we are going to come back together, and that makes us connected in some spiritually radical, cool way. A church is a big deal. We make a small deal of it sometimes, and I think we do that when we forget what church is, when it's just this thing that we show up and try to get fed at and enjoy a little bit, and we gauge the sermon, and we judge the music, and we talk about whether we liked it or not. When that's our small, puny view of church, then it's not going to be that important, and we will not take seriously what we're going to look at in this sermon, the one another's, the things that we ought to do for the others, the things that the others ought to do for us that gather with us consistently in the presence of God. So God sets up this thing. It's so cool. He sets up this thing called church. He's like, there's gonna be, I mean, there's gonna be groups of people who gather together consistently and they're gonna pop up all over the known world. They're gonna change the landscape of the whole world, right? I mean, there's churches all over this great world and, and God sets up this thing and then, and then he's like, let's put some structure around it. I'll put leadership into place. I'll give them instruction on, on how they ought to conduct themselves when they come together and... This is what we're going to look at. And I will tell people who go to those churches how they ought to interact with one another. What's so fascinating, we, we don't even know this because, because the language makes it a little difficult, but a good chunk of the Bible is not written for your personal spiritual life. The New Testament is in large part, a very high percentage of the New Testament is not about you and what you do individually as a Christian, as a person trying to follow God. It's about what we do. It's about what we do in our efforts to live for Jesus and to live in light of our love for Jesus. 
This, this is missed. Let me just tell you why it's missed a lot of times. Because we don't put the plural you into our translations. And so a lot of times it says y'all, you all, you guys, to put it in our Northwestern vernacular. But we just read you. And we think, well, I ought to do that. But really what God is telling us is you all ought to do this. And as we turn our attention to the, the first of our one another statements in this series, I just, I just want you to have in your head what a powerful entity we are, a group of people who meet in the presence of God weekly with the promise of being back here together next week. And God has put instruction and form and structure around this to say, look, here's what you are, but here is what you do. And specifically, we're going to look at, this is so cool, there's this Greek word, and there's this Greek word that translates into one another. Uh, it's al-i-lon. Ale- oh man, I had it down. Alilon. Is that right, Chuck? Look out there. Let's say it again. Alelon. Thank you. I had that ready to go until right then, and then it looked wrong on my notes. But alelon. Thumbs up. He's not listening to me anymore. Alelon. Thank you. We got the thumbs up. Is the word that translates into one another. It's used. Listen to this. One hundred times in the New Testament. And in 94 verses, and the majority of the time, it is about the commands that God has for us who are part of church. You don't even know any of them, probably. You might know one, like you should love one another, but you don't even know them. And here's the first one that we want to look at. We'll look at all of them in in the book of Romans. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another. Now this Greek word translated, and I'm sorry for all the Greek and Hebrew words today, but the Greek word translated be devoted is this incredible word that I just wanted to share with people this week because it's a word that is uh, only used here in the New Testament. It's philostrogos, I got that one, philostrogos, much harder than the other one, and it's this incredible word because of what it means outside of the New Testament, which helps us understand what it means in the New Testament. Uh, There's two reasons that this word is really important. One I want to tell you right now, and the other one I'll tell you in a minute. The first is that the ending part, stragos, is a word that refers to tender affection. That full word, philostrogos, is a word that was used in the New Testament world for the the love, the affection, the devotion, the care that a parent had for their child. That's a big word, right? I, uh, I have children of my own now, and, and the love that I have for them uh, is beyond anything that I had ever experienced before I had them. I, I, I have told this joke that I would probably die for most people, but I'd only want to die for a certain few. I, see, I say that sometimes, and, and when I look at my kids, I know that without hesitation, without thought, I would give my life for them. I would be willing to be tortured for them. I would be willing to suffer for them. I would be willing to go hungry for them. I mean, when they feel pain, I wish I could feel it for them. I, I, I would do anything for their good. I grew up in a home where lots of family members 
loved me with deep love and, and I can look back on my life and, and you don't really get this until you become a parent yourself but, but like you see the sacrifices that were made in order for you to have a happy childhood, the way people cared about you, the way people were there for you, the way people took you to things and paid for things and all of that stuff and, and it's humbling once you have children to say, wow, I never, I never really never really cared. I never was really excited about that. Like that, I mean, Father's Day and Mother's Day, they, they take on whole new meanings when you become a parent because you see what a big deal it was for your parents to take care of you, to love you with this tender affection. This word that is a deep-seated natural love. I was thinking about the, the perfect illustration for this and, and I I couldn't come up with one this week. I was thinking like, what is the perfect illustration to, the, to describe my dad's love for me that would kind of give away this, you know, this idea, like what, what does this look like? Like what is Paul getting at here when he says, he says be devoted to one another? What's this word really mean? How can I apply it? And I'm like, what's, what is it? What's the illustration? But there's no single moment and that's what makes it beautiful. I can look back on my life and think my dad at every step of the way in some way was sacrificing for my good. He was showing me he cared. He was taking care of me. I remember, man, this, I just got an illustration now. I don't know for <laughs> all week you try to think of one and here's one. But, but I've told you this before, but when I was a kid, I didn't have much, very much money. My dad was going to school and, and working, you know, just a low level job or whatever. And, and, and sports were a big deal to me. And I remember, I remember going to a batting cage, which would have cost us like $5. And then we didn't have any money for lunch. And so we would go get a single bean burrito and a cup of water, which you could get for $1 at the time at Taco Bell. And, and at the time, it didn't seem like anything to me. But as I think about it now, like my dad can be filled up on a single bean burrito. I don't think, right? Like, does that fill anybody up? Maybe for like five seconds and then you have to go to the bathroom. But like, I, you know what I mean if you eat Taco Bell. Um, I'm just saying like, like that's, that's the type of devotion that, that you would, would say, I'll eat one single bean burrito in order that you can go to a batting cage. That's the type of affection that Paul is talking about in this passage it's a word that that describes a parent's love a parent's devotion a parent's affection for their children unto their children say well that's normal I mean that's natural we look at parents who don't love their children that way and, and and we look at and we just think of them as evil right I mean, we just say like that, like you're bad if you don't love your children with that type of love. But here's what's so crazy. Paul says this clearly within the context of church. That feels far less natural, right? I mean, I want you, you, like you people that are sitting next to each other right now, I want you to love each other, to care about each other, to, to be connected to each other in a loving and affectionate and profound way. I want you to be connected like that, like a parent. That's hard. I don't think that's being obeyed in the church today. 
It's pretty clear. Paul doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't go all over the place. He says, I want you to love each other like parents love their children. That's what I want from you. I want the devotion that a parent has towards their children. I want the sacrifice that a parent has towards their children. It's really easy. This is what I've noticed. We, we can do this. If you're not a Christian, I don't know if you're as much like this as we who are Christians, but we are always like, oh, I love everybody. Of course I love everybody in the church. Matt, in a couple of weeks, is going to talk about the importance of loving one another. But here, I, I just want you to move past the idea of like, I love everybody or I love the people in my church. Are you affectionate towards people in the church? Are you affectionate towards one another? That's harder. That's harder. And then, and then Paul, he says next, in love. It's like he's building on top of it. I want you to be devoted to one another in love. It's this other Greek word, and it's the Greek word that, that you probably know. It's where we get Philadelphia. It's the word that means brotherly love. It's uh, a word that if you've been in church circles, you, you've heard this word before, Philadelphia. It's, it's, the, it's a word that, you know, like in the premarital counseling book that I use with people, they talk about three types of love, agape and eros, and, and this one, phila, or Philadelphia, brotherly love. It's a word that we are more familiar with if we've been in the church but it's not a word that I think we put into practice in our church, in the church space. I was thinking about the love that brothers have for each other. It's a really easy thing to say, right? Like, like just brotherly love. We should have that for each other. Like, what's up, man? How you doing? But, but think about the way in which brothers love each other. It's not always easy to see on the surface, I only have brother-in-laws. I hardly ever say anything nice to them. They hardly ever say anything nice to each other. But I know, and they're brother-in-laws. I know that they would be there for me through anything. I don't even question that. I'm not even blood-related to them. And, and yet, I know without question that they would be there for me in anything. We mounted a TV about a year ago in our house, and, and they know, like, I'm bad at doing things and and they're like we just like I didn't even ask for help I don't think it was just like we'll just do this because we don't want your kids to die we love your children you know our niece and nephew are important to us so we'll just come over and do it my brother Danny who's back there he helps me with everything he just fixes everything my kids they don't say dad can you fix it they say Danny fix it I'm not joking, like, like if a battery goes out in a toy, they're like, Danny fix it? Like, well, I, I got this one, Hudson, I can, I can get the batteries out of the garage, and then I can't get the thing unscrewed, and I call Danny, you know, like, that's how it goes. We can think of, like, band of brothers, right, in the military, people willing to suffer and die for each other. I've never been in the military, though, and so instead, I think about my days in sports, and, and the way that you're connected to the people that you play with. They feel like brothers. You don't always get along. You're not always super happy with each other. Not every guy on your team is going to be the best friend, but you're always going to be there for one another. I play softball in the Tualatin Softball League uh, along with our church team, which plays in the Wilsonville team, but I play with, with a group of people in Tualatin, and, and our first year out there, we were in the, the, 
the worst league and we were, we were the best team by far in any of the leagues. And, and so we ended up winning every game by like 20. It was not fun, but something happened. People started to hate us. Like they, I mean, really like hate us. Like there was a tournament at the end and people showed up to root against us and, and people were complaining about us and asking for our bats to be checked to make sure they were legal. This happened like every game and somebody threatened a lawsuit because we were too good or something. We were gonna hurt somebody. And I mean, and I'll tell you, like I, I didn't know this group of people very well, but all of a sudden we were in the trenches together and, and out of that, we've become uh, like brothers and sisters. And, and I remember like there's been a couple moments where people wanted to fight us. And I'll tell you, like I, I, I don't, haven't known these people very long. I don't care, but I'm not running away. I'm gonna run towards where the action is because I care about these people now. They've become friends to me. They've become teammates to me. In some ways, they've become like brothers to me. That's what's so interesting about brotherly love. Brotherly love doesn't run away from the action and say it's too tough, it's too hard, it's too difficult, you've got yourself into a bind. Brotherly love causes us to love, run towards the action even when our brothers or our sisters have messed it up and caused the problem in the first place. That's what brotherly love does. You put these two phrases together and it's such an interesting idea we are to love one another like a brother loves a brother, utterly devoted, that's how I'd say it. Utterly devoted, no matter how much you mess it up, no matter what you do, no matter what you've done to me and how angry I am to you, I'll be there for you. And we should love each other with the affection a parent has for their child. We who are Christians, who are a part of church together, we should be people that love each other like brothers and like parents, we should be devoted to each other and affectionate towards one another. Now look, here's, here's what we've done to the church. We've lost some of this language because the church from the very beginning, God said, here's the deal. It's this group of people that gather in my presence, but let me tell you what it should be like. It should be like a family. This is just normal language in the Bible. It should be like a family. Jesus says this incredible thing in Matthew 12, 46 through 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now this sounds a bit harsh, right? It's like, wow, what a jerk that doesn't sound nice but let me just two things two important things one his brothers become some of his most devoted followers they they uh, some of the new testament is written by one of his brothers they follow him the early church is led by one of his brothers i mean jesus loved his brothers and his brothers loved him also, when Jesus was hanging on a cross, dying for the sins of the world, Jesus looked out and made sure that his mother was taken care of. Jesus is not here saying, I don't care about those people. Get them out of here. Jesus is teaching something about the church. He is saying that the, the bond between the church should be stronger than the bond between the biological family. That's a huge idea. That's not one we have in our heads, right? I mean, we talk about blood being thicker than water. We say, I would do anything for family, but how often do we say, I would do anything for those people that I worship in the presence of God with? 
It's hard. I get that it's a hard teaching. And we grow up doing family, but we don't always grow up doing church. And so how does this play out that I'm supposed to be the family with this group of people that I've just shown up here with? But it's a big, important idea, even if it's a hard idea. When you look at the people sitting next to you, if you're part of this church, if you've committed to this church, then you need to stop thinking about them as people that you, that you hang out with once a week and you need to start thinking about them as family. You need to start moving towards loving people like a parent loves their children and like a brother loves their brother. We need to get back to this idea of seeing church as family. We need to get back to this. If we don't get back to this, then I think that people more and more, where it's not culturally important to go to church, they'll say, what's the point? That's what we've seen in this state, right, in Oregon. There's no cultural pressure for you to be here today. There's probably more cultural pressure for you to not be here today. It's one of the great things I love about doing church, being a pastor in the Northwest. I love that if you're here, you're here for probably a good reason. You're probably here this morning because you want to hear from God, because you knew something was wrong in your life, because you understood that this was valuable in some way. You probably get that. But there is lots of people around us, there are lots of people around us who are asking the question, why would I go to church? What is important about it? But what if they showed up and they found family? That's important. So many families are broken and disgusting and evil and, you know, just all over the place, right? I mean, all of our families uh, probably go on a scale of, like, slightly dysfunctional to extremely terribly dysfunctional, right? Like, we're all on that scale somewhere. I've never met a person who said, like, man, my family, all of them, you know, all my aunts, all my uncles, all my cousins, it's so perfect, right? Like, nobody, maybe it's you and I'm thankful for you, but nobody says that. Most people want to feel like they're part of a family and a good family. And church should be that for people. So here, here's the first one another. The first one another is, is simply this. Our, our local church should be like a, a, an immediate family. The outside of the church, it should be like a bunch of cousins, right? Like the other people that go to church, they should be like our cousins. This is our immediate family. And because of that, we should be devoted to one another like brothers and affectionate towards one another like parents. But then there's this other one another statement, right? In the same verse. I'm not even gonna leave the verse. Romans 12, 10. Honor one another above yourselves. The second one another statement in the same verse, the overall idea of this section is is pretty clear, but there are some nuances that kind of make it difficult. Um, Consider the word honor just for a second before I get into that. It's one of those church words, right? Like, I don't know, it's used outside of church maybe, you know, every now and then, but in church we talk about honoring God honoring each other. This is kind of part of the cultural language, but we never really stop to think about what that means. What is honor? The Greek word again really helps us here. The Greek word that translates into honor is used in the New Testament for the price paid for something. I like that. And and when it is used less literally, it's like a holding worth, estimation, esteem, respect, or value. The idea is that we place a high value on other people. Other people specifically within our church. 
One of the things that that separates, I think, Christians from most of the world today is that we place a high value on life, all people's lives. We look at others and we say, you are valued. And we look at others and say, you have worth. Why? Well, because you were created in the image of God. But that should be even magnified when we look at the other people that sit next to us, that worship with us on a weekly basis. We should look at them and say, you have worth and value because of who God made you to be, because of how God has created you. But you also have worth and value as my brother and sister in Christ. This other phrase in here is so good. It's this this word that that means going before. And so the idea here is this, that we should go before each other in honor. And this is where people start to kind of like disagree on what exactly it means. Douglas Moo, who wrote wrote an incredible commentary on the book of Romans, says it means this, in honoring, preferring one another. Another author says, as to respect and kindness going before each other or setting an example to one another. But more likely it means this, and this is so hard. Man, I love this. Pay such close attention to this. Most likely it means surpassing one another and showing honor. That's a big idea. What if it was a competition to, to show each other how valuable the other person is? In our congregations, like, no, you're more valuable. No, you're more valuable. Let me get that chair, you know? Like, you don't, have, you don't get the chairs. You go sit down for a little while. Nobody say that here, please. But like, you, you, I, you, like you are worth more. You're more valuable. And the other person's going, <coughs> no, you are. Like, let me take care of it. Let me do it. Let, like, let, like, you sit down for a while. You take a break. Let me take care of it. What if, we, what if that was the culture of church? How different would that be? <laughs> than what you've experienced before. And I'll go all the way back to the beginning and say, how valuable would a church be to your spiritual life if people loved one another like a parent and a brother, people were devoted to each other and affectionate towards one another, and people were saying, let me, let me beat you. Let me win when it comes to honoring the others. Let me go before you. Let me surpass you in my ability to show honor. That would be life-changing. And I'll tell you, not only would that be life-changing for you and for me, that would be culture-changing for the American church. There are plenty of great sermons. There's plenty of great music. There's plenty of great light shows at churches all around uh, our country and around the world today. But what I don't think there's enough of is people saying to the people next to them, I feel affection towards you. I am devoted to you. And I want to honor you. Just don't experience that very often. I've told this, this story before, man. Um, life-changing for me. Life-changing story. But after high school, that, that same girl who invited me to her church, actually, she, she broke up with me. I would like to say it's mutual like most people do after they get broken up with, but it would be a lie and I'm preaching right now. So she broke up with me and and I was depressed, and, uh, and I was supposed to go on a, a mission. Tr- well, I was leaving after I graduated for a trip to Hawaii with uh, my, my friends. We were spending all of our graduation money. Not a great idea if you're graduating, but we were headed off to Hawaii to spend all of our graduation money and have a great time together. Just after this, like the week after this, there was a mission trip with my youth group to San Diego. 
And they all wanted me to go. They knew I wanted to be a pastor. I'm depressed. Bethany's going to be there. I don't want to be there. I want no part in that. You might be able to understand, right? Like, I don't want to be there. She's going to be there. I'm going to go have fun in, in Hawaii, and then, you know, I'll, I'll come back, and I'll play baseball all summer, and my life will be okay. And this one man named John just he was devoted to me and apparently affectionate, and he showed me honor. And here's how he did it. He just kept saying, like, no, I really want you to come. And then I'd make an excuse, and he'd say, yeah, but I really want you to come. And, and so it went like this. It was like, it was like well, I'm going to be in Hawaii when you guys start driving. And he's like, oh, well, just, just fly into San Diego, and I'll pick you up. Like, why? Like, stop bothering me. That's how I felt. Like, just stop bothering me. Like, I, I don't I didn't ever say I don't want to go, but that's what I was saying. Like, I don't want to be there. He just kept coming at me, and I eventually had no more excuses. I ended my trip in Hawaii. I flew into San Diego, had a whole middle road to myself, took a nap, one of the greatest plane flights I've ever had, landed in San Diego, he was there to pick me up. He had driven like an hour to get me, left the youth group and his responsibilities there behind. He wasn't even the youth pastor. He was not a paid person, just some volunteer in the youth ministry. Picked me up, drove me back. That week I was asked to give my testimony. I gave my testimony. Two little boys in southeast San Diego that I thought I had nothing in common with looked at me and, and, and one of them said, I, I, need, to, I need to talk to you. And I, I said, okay, can we, not, can we take a walk? So he said, we weren't allowed to go outside because it was a very dangerous neighborhood. So I go, I don't know who to, I say, hey, can I take a walk with this kid? Like, you know, and this person apparently was not devoted towards me or affectionate towards me because they said, sure, go ahead. Um, I don't know who that volunteer was, but yeah, you'll, you'll be fine probably. So I take a walk with this kid and he said, everything you just described about your childhood and the struggles in that childhood, that's my life. Mikey and Marky devoted their lives to Jesus that day, and I was hooked on trying to lead people to Jesus. That trip changed my life. If you talk to me about my spiritual journey, there's a few moments that were so impactful, and, and, and th th it changed me forever. And that trip is one of them, all because a guy named John, who I don't know anymore, I haven't seen in years, he just said, I'm going to be devoted to this young man. Apparently, I have some affection towards him that cares whether he's there or not. And I will honor him by driving to get him, by going out of my way to, to do something positive for his life. The Nazarene church changed my life because somebody said, I'm going to take seriously this one another. I'm going to take it seriously. Here's the call today. Here's the first thing. It's easy. It's really easy to say, yeah, that, how come other people aren't doing that for me? <laughs> That's the easy response to this sermon. Like, you just say, well, we're not doing good enough at this church. And we, I think we do a great job. We're not doing good enough. We want to keep moving forward. We'll continue to get better. It's part of our DNA to keep growing and, and what we do to keep improving. But, but the easy thing is to say, how come others aren't? But that's not the first response. The first response should be say, am I? Am I devoted to these people? Am I growing in my affection towards these people? Am I honoring them above myself? Am I trying to win in the topic of honor, in the thing of honor? Am I doing my best there? But the other part is, and I'm telling you, I, I, I say this from my own personal life. You also, first, you gotta do it. You have to be a person who does it. But second, you have to be a person that allows others 
to be devoted to you and affectionate to you and honoring you. We kind of hide in churches. It was said at the very beginning. I went to Dayspring for years and years and years and nobody would have had the opportunity to invest in me. But I showed up at the Nats, like I said, Bethany's boyfriend and people, I, I was there. I was a part of it. I was serving. I was helping. I was engaging. I was talking to people. I was hanging out afterwards. I wasn't rolling in late and leaving early. You, you need to do these things, but also you need to be a person who does church in such a way that they can be done for you. You'll go to this church, you can go to this church for 15 years and never feel like anybody is devoted towards you or affectionate towards you and never feel like anybody's honoring you if you roll in here two, three, four, five minutes late, you show up, you sing songs, listen to a sermon and then jet out of here before anybody has a chance to talk to you. And what will happen is you won't stay 15 years, you'll stay uh, you know, a few months and then you'll say like, yeah, I just didn't get anything out of that. We need to be people that do it, but we also need to be people who do church in such a way that, that it allows for it to happen to us. I promise you that if you're willing to take steps, there are people in this church that will be devoted to you, they will grow in affection to you, they will honor you, I promise you that. But you have to be willing for it to happen, you have to open yourself up so that it can happen. And so, the application for today is first, be a person that is devoted and affectionate towards others and, and who, is, who is honoring them above yourself, but also be a person who does church in such a way that you can have others devoted to you, loving you, and honoring you. Let me pray that that will happen. God, I pray for our church first. Man, I want us to be a great church. God, I think we are a good church, and, and I'm so happy with how we how we keep improving. I think we keep getting better. We keep growing. We keep striving more and more for, you know, excellence in our efforts, God, to experience and express your glory. But we have so far to go. And Lord, I am very aware that as our church grows in number, which it's done a lot lately, as that happens, God, then some of these things are going to become harder. But I want these things to be so in the DNA that whether we have, you know, 80 people at our church or 500 people at our church, God, we still see the devotion and the affection and the honor of one another because it's just a part of who we are as a church, Lord. I pray for each of us, Lord, and I ask that, that first we would be people who are doing these things, who are, are growing in our our brotherly love, who are growing in our parental love for those that we show up with each and every week. And I also pray, God, that this thing that I just said, that we would just open ourselves up, that we would not take the American model of church and say, yeah, like I'm gonna show up and hang out and get fed, but we would, God, we would just say, I'll be a part of this. I'll be a part of this. Because I think that being a part of a church changes life. I think going to a church has very little effect. And so God, I pray for all of us that we would be a part of this church and not just go to it. Uh, Lord, I wanna be a model church. I wanna be a church that shows other churches how to do it. I wanna be a church that, that demonstrates love to one another so much that people around us look and they say, wow, that is like a big family that cares about each other and takes care of each other and is there for each other. And I pray that you would make it happen, Lord, because it won't happen. We'll naturally drift to showing up, hanging out, 
leaving and never thinking about each other again. And so make it happen in our midst, God, I pray. I love you, Jesus. I thank you for church. What an incredible gift. What an incredible gift. I pray these things in your name. Amen.